At the heart of the inquiry, at least as I'm proposing it, and we'll see where we go, wants to relate with the heart of what matters, of what value is, of what value creation is. Now, beginning that so broadly, as I was just saying, well, valuable to who? You know, who are we talking about? Are we talking from the perspective of culture, from nature, what matters to an ecology that can support a complexity of life, over what time horizon, you know, for psyche, for me, for you. There's a tremendous amount of perspectives that we can bring to bear on this. There is part of this inquiry that was initially framed in terms of political economy one of the first classes I took at university when I was sort of 18, 19, it was a political science course. And the book, the textbook, or one of them was titled How the World Works, which was an ambitious title. And from that perspective, the world worked according to a certain analysis of economics, and then some sort of argument about whether it was a realist interpretation of international relations or maybe it had some liberalism very little in the way of psychology very little of relating to what matters at all and what are we here for who do we want to be and maybe who we are in some sense more fundamental to that what is the nature of creativity and so one other aspect to this inquiry I suppose, wants to be mindful of how an important aspect of our global political world, our global economic world, talks about value exchange in terms of, let's say, GDP. This is some measure of attempting to get at the value exchanged in a system. But perhaps we all might agree it's woefully incomplete. For instance, you know, there might be in there the penalty someone pays to a credit card company. That's part of GDP, but where is the value being created, right? And how can we together create and understand the world and participate in a world that might value more effectively? But again, for what? And so something in here is the nature of the inquiry. I'm here with Forrest Landry, who's a remarkable generalist thinker is a craftsman and a philosopher of the the deepest caliber um, likewise og rose uh, daniel garner you know younger perhaps by a decade or two but someone i've known to be a truly remarkable thinker and michelle as well a, a civilizational theorist and um and rightfully so I have tremendous respect for the breadth of your scholarship and understanding of how it is that societies have come to value and how civilizations have transitioned over many centuries. And so that's the opening there. Thank you for listening to that. And the opening question is just to yourself, Forrest, and it's a broad one. <laughs> and uh, how do you think about what matters? How do you think about value in the context of what I brought forth? And what are you sensing is the heart of the inquiry that's coming from me here? Well, it is a broad question. Um, I hear underneath this a sense of meaningfulness. What is meaningful? What does the notion of meaningfulness even mean? How do we relate to the notion of meaningfulness? And this is a 
uh, it is a broad question in the sense that it it's 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 connected to a fairly abstract concept of of meaningfulness itself. Um, in in certain sense, to start from a sort of uh, maybe metaphysical perspective, I think of it as a relationship between three worlds, at least one of which has subjective components. Um, so in effect, it's kind of like you know I might say something. You know, I, in my subjective context, use some statement in a language to convey something to you that you would understand in your subjective context. And so in this sense, we could think about uh, communication of meaning as as, as a, a very general process. Um, in terms of what the notion of meaningfulness is itself in relation to, uh, I do think about value. I do think about purpose in this notion of meaningfulness as being connected to both value and to purpose. So there's a kind of uh, functional component and there's a kind of symbolic or maybe even a sacred component. Um, we might have, for example, the notion of sacredness as being like the epitome or the, the maximum or the totality of all meaningfulness or that which is the most meaningful. Um, so in a sense, when, you're, when, I, when I hear the question, um, you know, what is meaningfulness? I can refer to the abstract notion, but then we can basically say, well, what is meaningful? And, and at this point, you know, you're, you're, you're mentioning the, the relativity of the question, meaningful to who and under what circumstances. Um, and again, starting from a somewhat metaphysical premise, I think about, well, insofar as there's, is there some subjectiveness associated with the notion of meaningfulness inherently, then I think meaningfulness in relation to life. And in this sense, we immediately encounter the idea that all life is meaningful and all meaningfulness is alive. And that this is something that we need to take seriously. We need to really like acknowledge that to actually like integrate that into our uh, methods of understanding and our, our comprehension of reality in the universe. And so in this sense, uh, again, thinking about it from a fairly abstract point of view, I think a lot about uh, the relationship between the subjective and the objective and how that is an embodiment of meaningfulness, regardless of what kind of uh, subjectivity or objectivity we may be referring to. And so this sense of connection or relationship or dialogue or process is essentially being the sort of fundamental, the interaction between the subjective as being the basis for both the beingness of the subjective and the interaction, uh, the beingness of the subjective and the objective primarily, that, that in effect, uh, it, it therefore is actually a very good question to start with. Because in this sense, we can start thinking about connections to, from say, surface self to deep self, or from self to world, as I've alluded to already, and also, as you mentioned, um, between self and other, you know, what are our, our relationships? And so, you know, you mentioned uh, economic process, um, and I think of this as essentially being an element of, of what we might think of as choice process. So in effect, when, when, when thinking about, um, you know, purchase of goods and services, you know, obviously the choice is involved in that, but but, but that ultimately we're, we're really talking about how do we make good choices? How do we make wise choices? Or in the sense that you asked, how do we make meaningful choices? And what is the nature of, of, of making a meaningful choice? Um, particularly in the sense of that relationship being itself uh, something which is, uh, has, has a realness to it, has the notion of, of a real nature. Um, so in this sense, it's it's not just choice that we're thinking about. It's also the notion of of change and of causation. And that if I really want to grapple with the notion of choice, change, and causation, to essentially to, to be in direct relationship with the process of the real itself, 
um, then, then in effect, I want to know the nature of the, the essential nature of choice, change, and causation. I want to, I want in a sense, grapple with the meaningfulness of those terms, uh, both as abstractions and as embodied realities. So, in in, in this specific sense, um, you know, it's not just an economic question; it's also a sort of governance one. Like, how do we make choices together? What is the community process that we collectively make choices, and are those choices adequately wise to? preserve the well-being of the relationships that we are, in effect, entangled with. In other words, is it the case that our life is supporting life? And that which doesn't support life won't continue to live. And so in this particular sense, we have a a, a real notion here of, of, of upholding life and meaningfulness in, in, in a very deep way, in a very integrated way. Um, and, and in a sense, I'm, I'm not being... It, it might seem like I'm holding a certain agnosticism with respect to the notion of, 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 of the meaningfulness of life, but actually I'm not. I'm, I'm basically saying life is meaningful and that in effect, we, we, we want to really be in recognition of that in, in the deepest possible sense. Um, that, that, that in, in some, in some senses that, that, that we're really trying to make meaningful choices in the sense of choices that increase the quality of life, uh, increase, increase the, the, the quality of thrivingness. Uh, both for ourselves and for the people that we touch and the world that we live in, um, past, present, and future. Um, and, and in this sense, that's, that's you know, an appreciation of the past, an appreciation of the present, an appreciation of the potential of the future. So in, in, in a lot of ways, to, 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 to really uh, explore these concepts has, has something that there's been something that I've personally found uh, particularly meaningful insofar as it has clarified for me the very nature of what it means to make good choices and how to think about that ethically and to really understand the relationship between these principles and the practices that emerge from them and to some extent it's it's important for us to sort of recognize the connections between these principles and these practices specifically because as as things change in the world and the laws and cultural norms that we have all been accustomed to have uh, increasingly become less and less relevant, less and less meaningful for the kinds of lives that we notice that we want to be a part of, that in effect, we, we we then have to, in effect, let go of the preconceptions of how we think about things ought to be and come back down to the to the reality of the principles and the practices that, that enable life to actually thrive. And so in this sense, um, I, I find myself finding that these questions on one hand may seem really abstract, but in another respect, touch on the very deepest levels of what it is to live well and fully. And in that sense, it's sort of a deep tantra. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a incredibly deep way of thinking about and, and being with the, the, the sort of substance of one's life and, and relationships. Uh, again, not just uh, with one's own sort of spirit, but also with the with the deep of the world and 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 the the well being of the other, mm. and other including other people, other cultures, other lives. I mean, the, the animals and so on. So, in, so in this sense, um, I I don't know. On one hand, these things, like I said, may seem really abstract, but in another sense, they they touch on on a lot that is of value. Um, yes. When we when we think about meaningfulness and the meaningfulness of life, I, I'm I'm acknowledging the fact that there is effectively billions of years of evolutionary process that have attuned our lives and capacities in exquisite sensitivity to 
to to this world and that there is something there which is uh, not easily replaced and that therefore needs protecting. Right. Well, thank you, Forrest. Thank you very much. Yes, on the one hand, I appreciate that language that attempts to speak with breadth as well as depth can be taken as abstract. And yet, in this case, we're speaking about something profoundly intimate. And perhaps abstraction is necessary to speak on intimacy. <laughs> uh, at a certain sense, it is. It's, 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 it's this kind of ironic thing. We, 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 I noticed that these are things in the sense that we're talking about the relationship between the subjective and object. It's not the objective, it's this objective. And it's not the subjective, it's my personal subjective. And, and in a sense, it's like, it's actually as embodied as it gets. And this is this is as is 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 really not abstract at all. It's 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 that to 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 fully encompass is is to essentially hit all ranges of scale and process simultaneously. Yes, I understand. I understand. I feel that very much. So thank you. Now, there's a few different ways I could potentially point this, and so. I'll see about just opening the space a little bit and see if I can discern if anything wants to come through. Perhaps, if no one's chomping at the bit particularly, I might ask Michelle, because I think it would be interesting to introduce at an early stage how you think about the notion of the commons. This is something I've spoken to Forrest about. This will be tagged as part of an ongoing series, which situates the commons quite centrally because i think it's a very important notion you know certainly we could speak about it in the context of political economy but we could also speak about it in terms of language and this this uh, profound story and entanglement of life and relationships which constitutes us that in some sense we participate in know each other through and yet can forget all too quickly, it seems. So how do you think about the commons, Michel, in relation to some of what's been discussed so far? Right, thank you. Um, well, if, if you allow me, I, I just want to say a few words about value first. Um, so, you know, I, I also struggled with that notion of value and so I remember reading a 800-page book by David Graeber, the late David Graeber. And after reading 800 pages, I still didn't know what value was. And actually, his conclusion is that really nobody knows what value is. So I, you know, after 800 pages, I was really frustrated that he didn't give me a clear answer. Um, so... One of the ways I, I, I deal with it is, um, you know, by uh, also distinguishing material and immaterial value. So, or, you know, could say subjective objective would be another way uh, to say it. And so, and to view it historically. Um, and so broadly the way I see it, and I, you know, of course I, I could be wrong is that, um, you know, in the, let's say, the kinship-based uh, organization of, of human life, 
um, and the spirituality that was belonging to it, there was no difference between uh, material and immaterial. It was like a unified, animistic, everything had life, everything had soul. Uh, and there wasn't a big difference made between, you know, those different facets of life. And then when the higher religions came, with higher, I mean, you know, the, the kind of world religions we are accustomed to that came with the urban, uh, craft agrarian, um, mode of organizing, organizing life. I think we started to make a split and to actually value the immaterial more than the material. And and I think that has to be understood because we, we now are in the opposite, right? So and what that meant was that life was in service of the transcendent. And so um, even, you know, like a feudal lord, it wasn't his property. It was the property of the lineage. And he had a responsibility to grow and expand the, the lineage. The property of the of his lineage, not his own personal material interest. I, I think that's very important that you know that life and meaning was oriented to, towards that other thing uh, that was not not day to day material survival, but to be in touch with this kind of you know transcendent immaterial uh, value world. And then, of course, we shifted, and I think that's the world that is ending now, which is we we shifted towards privileging material value. And so the whole, you know, political economy of capital uh, is to make everything a commodity, including the immaterial. And, and so we are now in a, in a world where that is kind of breaking down and exacerbating at the same time. Because, you know, something that is dying usually like, clings to life and so there's this burst of communifying everything but I, I think it actually points to a certain kind of ending of this this period and so the shift that I see is a shift towards contribution and impact so we are moving from a value form that is based on scarcity like something that you need to make and you need resources to make it, and then you need to to evaluate the worth of of, of these uh, scarce resources, um, and and to a worldview like if you look at accounting, where everything is seen from like am I either individually or collectively as a corporate entity, am I making more profit? Am I growing my capital? And the kind of blindness to, you know, to the ecosystemic other. Uh, and, and so because that is not working anymore, because we are overusing, overshooting, uh, destroying, you know, the human and ecological health of the planet. So we are facing this shift. And so contribution. And so I'm, I'm coming to the comments. I'll, I'll, I'll just a minute. Um, so contribution and impact is everything that cannot be measured by, by commodity. And that we are not trying to find a way to either bring that in or to actually completely shift, um, you know, how we value. So we are now in a chaotic intercession um, between something that we know is no longer working and something that we're yearning for but don't really quite know how to, how to achieve. So I think this is where we are. So what do the commons have to do with this? 
So I think that about 5,000 years ago, you know, we could discuss exactly when that, that shift happened, but let's just say 5,000 years ago. So we shifted from this kind of kinship-based uh, to craft agrarian civilization. So an arrangement between the urban and the rural around agriculture and mining and making stuff to create these complex societies that were run by markets and states. And these are essentially extractive institutions. So we decided that value was something that we extracted from nature. Uh, and we build institutions that are based on either conquest, like the state, or, you know, like ex exploitation. I, I think we can use that term, uh, you know, from the material world, getting more useful things and maximizing those useful things. So that's a value form that changes over time as well, but that's a really basic like civilizational value form and orientation towards the world where the human uh, you know, is looking at the world as a resource to a certain degree and, 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 and using that resource. And, but there's always been the counter, the counter to this. And this is where the commons comes in. So you have the extractive impulse and you have the protective and the regenerative impulse. And so until capitalism, we always build both. Like we, we had an extractive impulse and institutions that were doing the extraction and that were creating, you know, empires and all of that. And then we had, at the same time, in the countryside, we had very strong commons that were recognized even by the warrior class and the priestly class. You know, the, the, the idea that society had both was a very important thing. And that is, I think, what, what the political economy of capitalism has, at least in the first phase, destroyed, thinking that the extraction should be like universal. Um, and that treating everything as a commodity, you know, would automatically lead to, to positive outcomes. And so, okay, so this is one thing. The, then the next thing to, to bring in is time and the idea of cycles. So I've been working quite a bit on the notion of cycles recently. I've been trying to make sense of all the people talking about cycles. And I, I have, you know, after maybe two years of thinking about it, a pretty good idea of how they fit with each other. And, you know, maybe if you want to talk about this, I, I could do, but I, I'll leave it there for the moment. So the idea is that we, in, in our history, we had these periods of ascending extractive moments where, you know, and the empires grow, the societies grow, and automatically overuse their resource base. And then the, and the commons tend to, but they provide good services for their core, population and so the commons tend to die out and then periods where the extractive institutions are in a descending phase people start losing trust in those institutions and then they revive their their commons and paradoxically this is the moment where we are is that that local dynamic is no longer working so that dynamic of you know going up and down with the commons is no longer working because we now have global overshoot. We have global extraction. Um, and so this brings me to the way I formulate is that we need to move to this 
cosmolocal paradigm, right? So this is actually a new phase of civilization. So if you temporalize it, you know, I would say 5,000 years ago, we moved from kinship to market states. And I think now we're moving to something else in this. So in, in which we need to rethink and reestablish a, a, a logic that is both an equilibrium with non-human beings and, and, and the web of life and, and, you know, nature, whatever you want to call it, but also amongst ourselves, right? We, we need to both find peace with, with the natural world of, you know, of course we are ourselves completely part of it, but also kind of separate from it in, in certain uh, real ways. But also between ourselves, because we, what we can see today is that both are in disequilibrium. It's, in other words, the people are not happy anymore. So we are in an age of like social dislocation and protest. And, um, so these things are very much linked to each other. I, I, I hope I didn't ramble too much. But anyway, so this is, this is where we think we are in. And so to come back to my cycles and close my reasoning, I think. We are in a period where every cycle is like converging to crisis. The 50-year conservative cycle, the 100-year generational cycle, the war and hegemonic cycle, the 500-year half-life cycle, which some uh, somebody called George Modelsky calls the learning algorithm, 16-generation algorithm, the 1,000-year cycle that Spengler and Toynbee identify in civilization. Uh, so all of these cycles are, you know, coming at a, at a, at a point, and every cycle has its agenda. Now I know it's weird to say that that you know, do these cycles have like agency? I think they do in a certain way because you know life is rhythm, like day and night, the the moon cycle, you know, the earth around the sun. These are these. I think these these are also agents, you know, in some way. They have causality, and so I think that what we call cycles actually does have, you know, unbeknownst to us, uh, has actually real causality. And so we, by knowing the different logics of these cycles, we have more agency ourselves. So it's to the degree that we know our determinisms that we can actually understand our real freedom. And to the degree that we don't know those determinisms, we may think we are free, but we actually are, you know, playthings of these larger forces. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. Can I jump in momentarily, although I'm actually really looking forward to hearing Daniel's voice. But I feel the, I feel the option, uh, Michael, our meeting has been overdue. Thank you, Tim, for, for bringing us together. I've, I've known of of your presence in this space for some time. Uh, and it's actually surprising to me that we haven't spoken sooner. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to speak briefly to you spe specifically to help connect our work. So in other words, to um, say, I hear you. And first of all, to provide bridges of language that allow for some of the thinking that I've been engaged with to connect to the thinking that you are engaged with so that we can see each other a little better. Uh, part of it is me learning your language, and also part of it is is me connecting my language to your language, so that you have the option to 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 use those tools if 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 that is helpful to you. Uh, especially because I I feel 
significantly the uh, frustration and the patience that you have to read an 800-page book and not come to a satisfying answer and 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 feeling the impulse of of of, of wanting to 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 put something in that space that would be of more utility to you than 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 the, the effort that you were were not rewarded. So in this sense, um, when I think about value, um, one of the languages that I've learned to use in this space is the language of actuality and potentiality. Another language that I've used to learn to, that I've learned to use in this space is the language of embodied versus virtual, to which you have already added the language of scale, local versus global, or perhaps cosmological, as I'm, I'm hearing you speak of it. And I think that these six sort of ordinations of value, right? These three dimensions of, of virtual versus embodied, right? When we talk about virtual capital, we're talking about uh, numbers in a bank account. Um, or tokens of exchange, like these little green pieces of paper, these are abstractions. They're not actual value in the sense of of, of something like uh, a person's health or you know that pile of trucks sitting over there, right? You know, embodied values are are things like our bodies, the trees, the the roads, the the the, the, the vehicles that we use, the airplanes, and so on, right? So in effect, there's 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 a sense of being able to distinguish between virtual value and embodied value and to know when and where we're losing coherency in one to gain in the other. Uh, so, for example, many of the problems you refer to not working. And so I want to now clarify, what do we mean by that? There's a sense in which we we take a tree out of the woods, right? We decontextualize it. Um, we take the log, we cut it up into boards and we make furniture. So we take the decontextualized thing and we turn it into a piece of furniture that we then sell. That's now going from embodied thing, an actual physical tree, an actual physical pile of wood, lumber, uh, a chair, now all of a sudden to a number, right? That chair is worth you know, a few hundred bucks. Um, if it's a custom-made chair, it's it's definitely worth that. So, so in effect, there's a sense in which the embodiment has been replaced with an abstraction, and the abstraction goes into a bank account, gets added to a bunch more similar abstractions, and it becomes an accumulation. And the um, the, the 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 time complexity of the tree in the woods as part of the ecosystem is 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 measured in gigapetabits per second at an absolute minimum. In other words, the amount of information that's involved in making a good choice as far as a tree in the woods is concerned is 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 requiring scientific notation of at least ten to the twenty two and probably ten to the thirty two um, you know complexity lines of code necessary to describe the situation. Giving a complete physical description of a log, a pile of wood, or a chair is still relatively a lot of information, probably 10 to the 6, maybe 10 to the 9 bits of information, depending upon how thorough you want to be. But by the time you go to abstraction, you're now replacing it with a 32-bit number. And when it goes into the bank account, you're talking fractions of a bit still represented. And so if we're thinking that in making choices around the well-being of the world, that we would want to be as informed as possible, we've re replaced a highly coherent, networked, multi-level interaction in an embodied ecosystem with a highly abstracted number in a bank account at something like 30 orders of magnitude loss of information relevant to making a good choice. That's the problem. And so in, in this particular sense, it's, it's important for us to keep track of not just transitions of scale, but transitions of embodiment versus virtual um, or actual versus potential, right? We went from actual complexity represented in the embodied to 
virtual complexity representative bank account, but the bank account number doesn't represent very much information at all. And the coherency of that, although it's something that the bank is a great interest to highly maintain uh, in order to you know, have the economic system still work, because if those numbers change arbitrarily, people wouldn't trust the system anymore. So in this sense, uh, we've traded a lot of embodied virtual actuality and potentiality for essentially, I'm mean, sorry, an embodied thing to a to a virtual thing that that is a lot less, and 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 so in effect, to to be focused on the actual and to let go of the potential, we can see what is, but to have vision about what could be is at least as important as what is because if we don't protect the potential, eventually we run out of potentials and we have only the not so good actuals. And so in this particular sense, the modern economic system is very, very good at optimizing for the current quarter and not at all good at optimizing for the next 250 years, certainly not the next several hundred thousand years. And so when we're, we're thinking about epochal time, and you've referred to this indirectly in your, in your thing, on one hand, we can basically say, well, mastery of living well and fully meant that in the state of nature 100,000 years ago, humanity learned to live in the cycle and flow of change. And if we're saying that the real is that which is at once choice, change, and causation, then at least in that sense, if you look at the earliest indigenous religions and we look at the earliest uh, dynamics associated with how to live well and fully, uh, Zen and Hinduism and you know all of the the, the, the earliest, the Upanishads, the stuff in Sanskrit, literally, there's, there's a notion here of dynamic living, living in contact with nature in an, an embodied and direct way with full cognizance of how to flow with that to perceive everything without filter, and then to express without hesitation. And so when we're thinking about what happened, say, 5,000 years ago, or 15,000 years ago, fire, the plow, farming, food collection, um, monotheism, uh, single state actors, single currency, and this, this sort of movement from tribal embodiment to nation states, uh, city-states of one sort or another, that in this particular thing, there were adaptations made that although um, we learned to work with causation really, really well, in effect, the totality of what is science and technology is science being the knowledge of causation and technology being the application of causation, that we have, in effect, developed a mastery of causation, which has, at one hand, separated us from nature, but in another hand, has given us a massive facility to deal with the world. But what got us here will not get us there. And so in this specific sense, to really be very specific about things like the Fermi paradox and what it would actually mean for the species to survive for the next 1,500 years or 15,000 years or for this planet to still be here, given certain modes of existential risk, which most people don't know about, there's a, there's a, there's a high level of concern for us to make very, very skillful choices. And that in effect, to have mastery of choice making is of a completely different order than the kind of mastery that would be associated with anything to do with causation. And that entirely the modern critique and almost everything about postmodern philosophy, modern philosophy effectively being the embodiment of causation taken to its max, the notion of system and bureaucracy and the methodology of government and education more or less all defined in ways that effectively optimize causal process. 
because at one point that was a good thing. But it is no longer a good thing because it is a tool, a single tool applied, at which point gets overused. And one tool cannot fix all problems. And no matter how much you know about causation, it cannot tell you the least thing about how to make a good choice. Technology can tell you what you can do, but it cannot tell you what you ought to do. And the enlightenment that basically replaced an awareness of value in the sense of embodied value, of cultural values, of the kind of things we might have thought of as religious notions of what means to live a good life in a transcendent sense, or what even means to live a good life in the embodied hedonistic sense, that, that regardless of, of, of those perspectives, that in some actual sense, that the guidance says to what was meaningful or worthwhile to choose for with respect to the base to was thrown out to the degree that those religious systems didn't provide explanatory power with respect to causal systems. But they sure as heck did give us guidance as to what was worth choosing and what sort of basis of choice would actually be meaningful and therefore valued in some real sense, whether it be transcendent, imminent, or omniscient. And so in this particular sense, it is therefore clear that we need to become much more skillful at making choices and that the causal processes that have been so useful to building the world that we live in today will not help us to navigate the kinds of existential crises or the sorts of civilization crises or to actually create a world that has the capacity for conscious sustainable evolution actually. And so in, in, in this specific sense, there is a a very, very deep need to apprehend the nature of choice, change, and causation as they are in themselves. And that anything less than this is insufficient. That, in effect, we cannot solve the Fermi paradox and address the issue associated with, is it the case that modern technological societies can long endure unless we have actually encompassed something that evolution could not have prepared us for? making good choices in the context of technology. Because technology can amplify the capacity for transactional process, and it can especially amplify the capacity for power relationships, which is what we're calling politics. But what it cannot do is amplify our capacity to care. That is something we must do ourselves. And in effect, there's a sense here that knowledge and understanding and the dynamics of how we hold care, how we are discerning, and how we are attuned with one another so that we can actually truly sense what is worth discerning about, and how we can actually connect with one another deeply enough at a local scale so that we can actually tune into what does it mean to live well and fully at this moment in this context right now. And that that would be the kind of choices that have the level of linkage at the level of connection to self, to world, and to other, which can actually make a difference. Thank you, Forrest. Thank you. Well, I am here going to point things over towards yourself, Daniel. And there's many, many different ways in. And knowing you you're more than capable of finding the way in on your own. So I'll leave that open to you. And if you'd like me to raise anything in particular, because there's a few different pathways of potential I see for a bit of uh, fun here that would work quite nicely, I can. So where are you at? How are you feeling? 
Well, where I'm at is in the presence of wonderful individuals on a lovely evening in Virginia, and I am glad to be here first. Mikkel Forrest, I have to salute you. Both of you have done very serious work on very real issues that a lot of people like to avoid, such as what does an organization actually look like in governance, or what does the supply chain and price mechanisms look like? There's a lot of tendency to know we ought to be talking about that in philosophy circles at the liminal web, but we'll get that tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. So I salute you both for taking those on because unless we take those on, um, we cannot get to that actual embodied place where value can be found. So I appreciate that very much. I very much like what Forrest just said. Some ways that I think about uh, value, uh, I'll go on that, is I think about the difference between value and utility. And I think about how one of the problems today is precisely because the political and the economic have been conflated, we can't think either, and thus we can't think a difference between utility and value. Uh, I know Mr. Landry makes an emphasis on the idea that we can't think either subjects or objects unless we think from the relation between subjects or objects, that identity has to follow from relation. The problem is that today political politics is basically the management of the economy. So it's really not that distinct from the economy, so we can't even really think what politics is. And likewise, we can't even think what economics is because it's not distinct from the polis. And so then the problem is without that distinction that makes it possible of relation, we can't think difference to think identity. And then we can't identify the difference between utility and value. And so this is a problem because I know Forrest will speak about um, the difference between um, power, um, uh, exchange, uh, transaction, I believe, and care as three kind of modes that we can go through. Basically impossible to think care if we don't have a meaningful distinction between politics and economics. And if care is on what so much rides today, we are in trouble. Also, I think this speaks to the value of a commons because the commons is a space that has a defense of a different kind of logic and story than what is given by the political and the economics. And I know you've said before that basically we can't think new paradigms unless we can think new logics. Well, there's no space for thinking new logics. Ah, so then we can't even think the logic we're in. That's the irony. Without difference, you can't even think the logic that you are in. And so we don't even know what political economics is, hardly even know what economics is, uh, because it is basically like um, it, I, the example that comes to mind that is you, you have to make whenever you think of this topic is the David Foster Wallace story of the fish and water. Fishes are coming along. The older fish says to the younger, water's warm today, boys. And the old guy goes by and the fish look at each other and like, what the heck is water? Uh, because if that's all you're always in, then you don't even know the thing that you're in. So we don't even know what an economy is. We basically think that an economy is what bestows your direction in life, as opposed to what provides the um, perhaps resources and utility to realize a value that you have chosen for yourself that has not been bestowed upon you by the economic system. But we have not thought that. Um, and we don't even realize we need to think that. Well, we really do now for all the reasons that Boris put out, which will require a distinction between the political and the economic. Now, I will frame this in the difference between value and utility, to use my language. I also appreciated Forrest the thinking um, about uh, matching up the languages between different philosophers. I think that skill right there or taking the time to do that does not happen enough in liminal web conversations, so they can't go anywhere. And that right there is an actually a skill of care that actually makes possible the political and political discourse and thus a space of the commons that without you can't then discuss what values we should use the utility of the economy to try to condition and realize. So if we cannot share language, then we cannot share life. 
So I appreciate that effort. But anyway, on the difference between utility and value, one of the things that I try to uh, get that in my head about is imagine you have two shirts and they're exactly the same, uh, exactly the same. And I say, hey, that one, I, you know, you come along, you look at it and say, oh, they're two shirts. They have what? The same utility value, if you grant it to me. But then I tell you, that shirt was made by my grandmother. Suddenly it has something beyond the utility. What exactly does it have, though? Where does that come from? There's suddenly a value there that I know about because I have a relation to that shirt because I have a relation to the person who made that shirt that then adds something to that shirt that is not reducible to the utility. Now, if grandma gave me a mousetrap that was kind of useless and maybe it even had some leftover peanut butter on it, it might have some value, but uh, it's not. I'm not going to keep that. But the shirt, because the utility is something I can wear and it has a certain value to it, it stands out to me more so than the shirt. Matthew, um, recently in a talk said there's, a, there's almost a sense in which the um, shirt that comes off the assembly line doesn't even exist compared to the identical shirt that was made by your grandma. That quality of meaning gives it a certain radiance of existence. Another term that comes to mind is aura of Walter Benjamin, where he says in a world where you can see photographs of the Mona Lisa and Walker Percy talks about this as well. When you can see pictures of these things before you visit the Mona Lisa, it loses a bit of the aura. There is something about the one of oneness that makes it stand out in a particularity that is hard to put into words, but you absolutely know it when you see it. It's hard to describe why the shirt made by your grandmother is special, but you know it when you see it. And I like how you're in your book, Forrest, on the imminent metaphysics. There's this notion that metaphysics is radically um, concrete and radically abstract at the same time. I think value can be like that as well. The value of that shirt is radically concrete. You absolutely know it's there. But then if someone tries to explain to you why and how do you defend it, it's kind of difficult. You say, well, it was my grandmother's. Oh, well, why does that matter to you? Because I loved her. Well, why did you love her? You can keep on going. It's like, well, okay, just, just I told you it's valuable. Okay, just take, take my word for it. Um, the problem is today, if I say to you, um, there's a difference between the identical sweaters, one made by grandma, the one that was not made by grandma. It's actually difficult today to think that difference in a world where there is no difference between the political and the economic. Part of the reason why we're in such trouble is because thinking that difference is hard to think now. And thinking that difference even matters is hard to think now because our thinking is so backgrounded by logics of exchange and transaction and power. So when you start talking about logics of care, I kind of get a sense what that's talking about, but come on guys, can you pay the bills? We know at the end of the day, it just matters if you pay the bills, right? But you see, the issue is in people's lives at the end of the day, the thing that they care about that's meaningful to them are stuff like that sweater that was made by grandma, not the sweater that maybe keeps them a little bit warmer in the winter. No, 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 the one they really, really like is the one that was given to them by grandma because there is something there that has a vibrancy of existence that is not found in the other thing that makes it seem like it exists more to you. And this is my point. Basically, the problem that has happened in economics, in my opinion, is that we have not actually addressed what is demand. We have treated demand as if it is this flea floating entity that is out there that you can just stimulate. So my critique of like, well, Keynesian economics, for example, will go on. We talk about creating demand, but really what we're talking about is stimulating demand by creating certain infrastructure, by creating certain sort of goods that will then stimulate demand. The problem is you can only stimulate demand so much before the economy starts to enter into slow growth. 
So, but here's the problem. The only way you know how to create demand is to stimulate demand. So then you expand the range of what can be commodified so that there's more parsability of people demanding these other things. And the logic of capitalism has to spread because you don't know how to create demand. You don't know how to train people to choose and to want things beyond what their external environment stimulates them to want. So all economic, now this is a very giant claim I'm making, but basically because economics has not asked the question, what is demand? It's been able to assume demand, which for a lot of human history, you can kind of get away with because, you know, if people don't have food, if you offer food, well, you know, you want food because your biological systems would make them naturally demand that. But the more and more you move into advanced economies, the more and more it is not given what people should demand because it is not so much linked to their biological systems. Well, then you have to tell them what to demand. You have to teach them what to demand. And who gets to do that? The market, the power, the politics. And so it trains people to see the world in terms of that which they can demand, and therefore you will have growth according to that demand. Here's the problem. The very things then we want in demand alienate us. They are not things we care about. And gradually and slowly, the things we demand become empty to us. And then you start getting the what? Meaning crisis, nihilism, boredom. There's this great mystery in capitalism called the great stagnation. People like Tyler Cohn will talk about this. Keynes was talking about this a long time ago, where there's something about the growth of economics that begins to slow with time. Also, you could argue that you start to see people not really seeing significance in the things that they could do. Well, yes, because the only logic of creating demand that we have is to make de demand something that is extimul externally stimulated upon people. And gradually and slowly that loses its titillation because we have not asked the question of how do you create demand? Because that would ultimately be the question of how do we care? How do we choose what we care about as opposed to have it bestowed upon us? Oh man, well now you're talking stuff like virtue. Now you're talking stuff about like training how we use our time and you're almost, are you going to reintroduce metaphysics into the conception of the human being is necessary for us to interact practically because otherwise utility, utility becomes reductionist and kills us all. It's almost like you're going to do that. It's almost like the ancients had a connection between virtue and value because they understood those went together. Oh my gosh. So what has happened is we're at the end of the ability to treat utility and, and value as similes. And we now have to understand that there is a distinction. And this is where I think the political can come back. Because right now there's basically, we've all given up on politics, right? Let's be honest. It's hard not to have given up on politics, except you saints like Mikkel, who go in and try to make it happen and force thinking organizations. So, but most of us, it's hard to think politics. But what if instead of, instead of politics being the management of the laws of regulation for the systems of utility, we instead made it the discourse of how exactly do we make phenomenon like that sweater that my grandma made? How do we make the world a place where things have aura? What is the balance between utility and commons so that the things I experience are not reducible to utility use, but have a certain aura to them? Well, that would require multiple logics, therefore spaces of commons, therefore spaces of the polis, so that you can think vision, basically. I've been reading, there is a great um, political thinker, um, Sheldon Rowland, W-O-L-I-N, who talked a lot about the need for politics to be about vision. He was a Tocqueville scholar and different things like that. Well, basically, if you don't have a meaningful distinction between utility and value, it's impossible to think what that even means anymore by vision. But we regain that. And we start asking the question, what are the conditions that a society needs to meet 
so that phenomenon have an aura like my grandmother's shirt so that I see something in them beyond the utility value of which I am able to see because I condition myself to have the virtue or the character to be so able to perceive that valuable that is not reduce, reducible to the utility. And suddenly you have a robust political life that's something like the gymnasium of the ability to experience value as such, to be able to fight off capturing logics that reduce everything you, to utility. So I think if we can make this separation, and then I'll pass it on here, if we can actually, again, separate the political and the economic, therefore have a relation to even identify what they are, then we can also begin to separate a difference between value and utility. And I'll also note, there has never in the history of it, now this is a giant claim I'm happy to expand upon. Funny enough, in the history of capitalism, there has actually never been a capitalism that has not relied on a space outside of capitalism to make it possible. Ivan Illich calls it shadow work. Dieter Miklowski calls it the rhetoric of innovation. It's just that through time, capitalism is more and more pretended like that other sphere doesn't exist, which has led to all sorts of pathologies and problems. Happy to discuss about this. I think it's an important reality of economic history. Um, the more you know that, the more we need a political space by which to discuss value so that it's possible to experience the world as existing in the same way that mom, grandma's sweater is existing because it gives off an aura that cannot be reduced to the utility, but is more concrete than the utility. And that's what we need to regain, the concretion of value and aura that we have lost because we are not able to think that diversity and difference. I would respond again if that's an offer. I'm delighted to hear you speak. It's great to meet you. Um, it's it's uh, so so in effect, in the same sort of sense that I did just a moment ago, and and and, and I appreciate your appreciating the, the the linkage of languages. Uh, obviously, I would I would love to extend the same to you as well. Um, and in this sense, uh, one of the things that that, that I notice, uh, first of all, aside from you know feeling the the bones of of what you're speaking to and and, and agreeing with quite a lot of it, is therefore to again try to give you some tools that that I have found to be useful to navigate the kinds of distinctions that you're that you're describing, right? So, for instance, um, in the same sort of way that I hear, uh, like when you when you said. Um, we can't give a reason for why we care about my relationship with grandma, right? You can't give a reason for love, right? There's no reason for it. It's just true. And the fact that it's irrational is part of the reason why it is meaningful. Because if it was for a reason, if I had a utility for grandmother, and that was the only relationship I had with her, then, you know, the utility is not her. It's just you know, essentially a proxy for her. And at that particular point, you can throw grandma away, keep the utility. Well, that's not caring for the person. It's not caring for the relationship. Okay. Um, if I love you because of such and such a reason, then that's not really love. So the fact of it being irrational is part of the reason why we care. Um, I hear really strongly the sort of distinction that you're making between economic process and political process. Um, I experienced this as akin to the distinction between the necessity of there to being a distinction between religion and state, that there should be a, a distinction between marketplace and state, and that, in effect, we really actually want to have a kind of checks and balances between all three of these, and that keeping them as distinct magisteria is absolutely essential for us to even have a coherent conversation about any of this. So I fully support that point. 
um, in, in this sort of sense, we basically say that um, if we just look at economic process by itself, economic process isn't a problem except when it begins to go out of bounds. It tries to do things well outside of the scope of which it has. Get what? Utility, right? And so in effect, there's a sense here in which we're saying, hey, there's a thing where we notice that healthy systems in nature have Gaussian distributions. And yet what we're actually seeing in the economic system is this power law distribution. And that is the inequality associated with the power law distribution that has limited our degrees of freedom, particularly in the area of potentiality and creativity, of integrating all of the knowledge and wisdom that's actually there for us to navigate the future we actually need to be a part of. And so in this particular sense, there's a, there's a recognition that the excesses of market process want to be constrained by what I would call governance process, not governments, not politics, but governance. But as far as I'm concerned, the notion of politics is a part of that. And so in this particular sense, I feel my view to be compatible with yours completely. Um, or rather that in effect, we just agree with one another. It's not even really a, a needing to, to spell it out per se, but, but in effect that, 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 it is actually a good idea to have governance process constrain the excesses of market process. But then we basically say, well, where does the governance get the value system from to decide how exactly to implement those constraints? And that comes back to community. It comes back to what we would normally think of as maybe being religious values, although I don't really want to think of religious values per se in the transcendent sense. I'm just basically noticing that every religion is a community. And every community has a value system of some sort or another, whether it's written down and explicit or not. There's always some moral code with every group of people. You put a bunch of people in a room, you leave them for there for a little while, and cultural norms will emerge. And whatever those cultural norms are, those are the kinds of things which are the choice-making basis, the value basis upon which the governance, in this sense, is going to basis its constraints on the market system. And then you basically say, well, how is it that we notice that the value systems of that community of people don't get completely out of whack, as may happen with certain varieties of transcendental religions that become cults? Like, where is it that there's a grounding of the value system in the actual embodiment of the world? Well, in some senses, your value systems in an embodied sense need to connect back to the actual reality of the world, which means, does your philosophy work? I mean, you can have all of those grand political or some religious philosophy, but it doesn't make practical sense in the business economy. Then basically, I'm just going to say you're full of shit. Right. You know, to use the technical term, right, to actually speak a word that is a little bit forbidden, because sometimes there are times where people have value systems that are completely out of touch with reality. So in the same sense, market systems should be a check on community value systems. Community value systems should be a check on governance process and governance process should be a check on on economic process. And oh, by the way, this sort of checks and balances thing is just exactly the kind of stuff that we would normally expect to see in any natural organic system. And it just works and it wants to work in that way. And this isn't a checks and balances that's within the governance. It's a trans-governance economic value community-based checks and balances system, right? In the same way that the dynamic that is internal to the governance process of some sort of checks and balances between whatever we call executive function, whatever we call legislative function, whatever we call judicial function, whatever those terms mean, how those things relate to one another, the microcosm of that wants to be the macrocosm of how the world works and vice versa. And that basically anything else is a kind of insanity essentially. So, so, so in this sense, I really get with you 
the idea that we need a distinction between market process and governance process, much the same way we've already enshrined a kind of distinction between value-based process and governance process, and that all three of these, in a sense, need to have coexistence with one another as distinct and separable and non-interchangeable, which, as you may recognize, is an axiomatic assertion. And it is actually a triple and subject to the rules of the axioms themselves. And that's not arbitrary, right? There's, there's, there's a dynamic of axiom two in the way in sequencing this is flowing. So, so in this sense, I guess you could say that that, that what I'm, I'm basically trying to do by pointing out things like love doesn't have a reason and that there's a checks and balances here and the distinctions you're pointing out are essential to being able to even understand how to cognate around these kinds of things. I'm basically showing you how the metaphysics connects to what you've already observed. And in that particular way, maybe this gives you some tools to sharpen the insights you already have, to be able to put in the language some of the things you already know. Um, another thing that comes up that is connected to that, which felt very, uh, very prescient, you mentioned, um, hey, by the way, we have this sort of utilitarian thing. But if you look really carefully, if you look really deep, you notice that every utilitarian system somewhere along the way comes back to a virtue ethics, comes back to a value ethics. And that nowhere is it actually the case that you have a fully independent, ungrounded utilitarianism, that every version of utilitarianism, even consequentialism, is effectively going to come back to some sort of virtue ethics. And virtue ethics is about value, point blank, period. And so in effect, you know, if we're actually going to think about these things clearly, we really want to notice the difference between consequentialism, you know, the sort of legalistic the, the notion system and, and an ultimate kind of value system. Because if we don't have clarity around that, we really don't know what we're talking about and can't actually make good choices about any of these things. And so in effect, there's yet another level here, which is, you know, so first of all, if you want articles where I actually show those connections explicitly on the point of view of firsthand metaphysics with no reference to anything other than the terms themselves, right? This isn't a historical treatise. You've already mentioned if you dig into historical stuff, you'll notice it's there too, right? But rather than waiting through all of that stuff, can we just see it as it is right now? Yes, of course we can. Got to dig a little bit. It's not the easiest thing. It's a little bit abstract, but it does actually make sense for us to recognize that, hey, do I want to replace the entire world with robots? No, that's a hell no, thank you, because basically there's no virtue ethics at all in any of it, right? Somewhere along the way, we've actually got to get to the point of recognizing that you cannot replace choice with causation. That's, again, yes. just a metaphysical truth. Yes. Which brings me to, I think, maybe one last point of correspondence, which I heard really strongly between what you were asserting and some of the things that I've also come to believe and feel really strongly, which may be, uh, again, a way of clarifying some of the things we're saying. It's really important for us to distinguish between want, need, and desire, mm -hmm. right? We're talking about economic process, and you're saying stimulating, you know, um, economic process. I hear you basically saying, well, they're, they're trying to create wants, but actually that's empty right because satisfying wants is only good for things outside of yourself needs are completely different 
And you can try to entangle people in the basis of need. You can try to implement some sort of extortion. Either you do what I want, or I will extort from you the capacity to survive or the capacity to reproduce. Maybe I will try to stimulate that by getting you to want to go on vacation to survive, experience enjoyment or whatever, or you know, be creative or reproduce in some sense, i.e. have families, family values all of a sudden become sexuality, becomes a wonderful mechanism by which to create marketing campaigns. But all of that is to stimulate wants, not actually to satisfy needs, right? And to some extent, what ends up happening is, is that the whole conversation effectively completely lets go of whatever desire and care was about in the first place. Because care, by the way, is something other than just satisfying wants or just satisfying needs. If we're going to actually have a conversation about politics and to talk about values in some sense or another, there really isn't a lot of negotiation around what values are. I'm sorry, what needs are. And there's not really going to be a lot of negotiation around what wants are. The place where we meet is where our passions are, where we breathe together, right? Conspiracy to breathe together is effectively a language that points literally to the notion of that, that when we think in terms of passion, when we think in terms of desire, that it can become our desires, not just my desires, not just your desires, but our desires, the community's desires, the world's desires, life's desires, right? What is the desire of life? It is to live, right? Really simple. And in effect, there's a sense here in which if we're if we're really searching for the relationship between simplicity, clarity, and complexity, or simplicity, complexity, and clarity, if I put it in the right order, then in effect, what happens is, is that we start to notice that we need to make distinctions, as you mentioned, between economic process and political process, and what is effectively community process, to the point that we're upholding all three of those really well, rather than neglecting community completely. We need to be able to distinguish between want, need, and desire so that we can even enable our conversation to be about desire rather than getting sidetracked into wants or needs, which, by the way, is a complete showstopper as far as conversations are concerned. And that we can actually start to make choices that will make sense relative to what actually matters because we have a consciousness of that now. We can meet there. And so in, in this specific sense, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning these these notions, these languages, these sorts of ways of thinking so that I guess you could see that there's coherence between what is essentially uh, the underlying metaphysics and, and 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 the kinds of notions that you have you've been bringing out. The same as I'm trying to do uh, for, for you, Michael, is to is to basically by talking about these sort of aeonic cycles to, to connect back to some of the things that you're noticing and pointing out in the sort of fractal sense as being like, Hey, these are things that are actually going on. Your intuition is tuning into something. Your intellect is noticing something. And here's a set of languages and tools which allows us to essentially clarify how to actually put those into structured language so that these all points, all four of us, can effectively be saying, well, actually, this is what we're noticing. And it's like the elephant. We're all seeing it more or less from different points of view. But it's one creature. And the more that we can connect the notes, the more that we can recognize that it's one creature. And we're not actually speaking different languages, although to some extent it might seem that way. We're actually pointing to one truth. And this is, uh, I, I don't know just how I'm sort of noticing it so far at this moment. Thank you, Forrest. Thank you. So we've been speaking for about an hour and a quarter. Wow. I am curious, I am curious, Michelle, 
how you are relating to this. There's a few places I would quite like to move things to, but they may or may not be possible in this conversation. It might need another. I think there would be some real, <laughs> uh, perhaps value and utility in considering, you know, I, I would like to share some of the, the pragmatics of my own journey in, let's say, relating to the endeavor toward opening up communication that can appreciate much of what you've just laid out, all three of you. And there are some needs for that process to undergo, for instance, a space that enables it, or at least some context we can share in, and a certain amount of time as just two basics. But we could also speak about the regulation of nervous systems. We could speak about needs at a whole bunch of levels in terms of the individuals and communities who found their way into that process. And if you happen to bump into someone at a time that doesn't make sense for them to engage in the kind of opening and contemplative process that might allow their desires to come to the fore and be well met, right, in an appropriate uh, dance toward a right kind of friendship and relating, which requires a certain vulnerability. We don't want to expose people into that process. There's a delicacy and a sensitivity to enabling, let's say, transformative exchange. And if we are to relate with that process of well, on one hand, can be seen as a kind of mutual education, although granted some people in their, in their time and place are capable, are necessary, let's say, for, for the appropriate teaching. It's still the case that we are speaking about a tremendous quantity of people who are involved in perpetuating the systems we're a part of. And... At this point, we can recognize many challenges associated with building the contexts and supporting the kind of contexts that are capable truly of cultivating on the one hand the kind of relationships, friendships in some crucial sense, that from my perspective are in, in an important sense, constitutive of the learning environment necessary to actually um, choose together what we, what we want to be. And I've spent a lot of time in that space. I've spent a lot of time in the real embodied endeavor toward building and creating and inviting in that way. And so I would like to sort of let listeners know that there is a very real sense in which from each of our perspectives this can be grounded in Forrest has already alluded to you know principles and practices but this can very much and I think ought at some point be grounded in real living stories of our actual lives and efforts to engage in society <laughs> and the various difficulties and challenges associated along the way I've spent a tremendous amount of time in conversation with Daniel about, for instance, the prospects of what it is to build the type of, whether we want to talk about it in terms of organization or school or artistic environment, there's 
speak about things in terms of the language of religion, this is an important category that's being brought to bear, not as something that is to be flippantly created, but certainly the kind of dynamics associated with the formation of attention and the cultivation of attention in formation that we'd associated with we'd associate with large group processes, right, that are seeking to be bastions of, of <laughs> enabling collective care right? and, and well-treatment of individuals. What a tremendous, perfect example, hey? What a tremendously traumatic thing to even mention in many contexts, right? And so to even get to the point where we can, let's say, use words that might distinguish things with some clarity, it turns out that many of those words actually are... Um, can be themselves profound barriers to continuing a particular kind of exchange. We're actually needing to meet in a very different way. We're needing a tremendous amount of time for processing of various things to be able fully to share our desires um, with each other in life, and we could say more things about that. So i just like to share a little bit of that as sort of an an impulse toward a certain kind of grounding and just to make the recognition that that is something which is in real living attempt. But I'm curious to hear from you, Michelle, because, well, I'm just wondering how you relate to this in general. I suppose there's no real other way to ask it than that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that I'm probably uh, the most uh, old-fashioned uh in this uh, uh, in this discussion, in the sense that I, you know, I'm really a product of kind of like a post-Marxist uh, thinking. Um, you know, for example, I think about political economy, and you know, fully aware of the distinction. But you know, the 19th century, when people were talking about the political economy, is because they saw the distinction, because they thought economics. You know, should be an expression of collective choice and not something that's that stands on its own, right? And that is what's happening now. It's like the economic is the only rationality that we that we recognize. So I I think in terms of you know, okay, I could be wrong, but I I think maybe both of you you're really thinking in terms of like first principles, you know, metaphysical distinctions, and I I think this is absolutely necessary. And I'm probably not so good at that. What I focus on is pretty much more like the collective field of the political economy. And, you know, how, how do we change this whole machinery in which we have to operate? Because our, our I think you will both recognize this, that, you know, the our capacity to achieve some of these things that we want is very much determined by the whole in which we are. Right. And so to, to a large degree, my, my thinking is like, like, what, what is the subject of change? You know, like, like Marx with the proletariat, you know, and so I, I've been pretty much thinking still in those terms of like, how do we change this whole body uh, of the world? Um, and I guess maybe the originality of my approach is that I, that I see the common as a real institution, uh, like not just a concept, but actually a real institution that can change our world, right? And so 
precisely because I, I had been like a failed revolutionary in my youth. I thought, oh, I, I don't want to think anymore in terms of like, this is what we should be doing. And this is, you know, no, I, I wanted to see what people were actually doing. And so that's how I came with this notion of seed forms, right? Where, um, so seed forms, so my, my thinking, and it is very much similar to what you were doing. I'm also very much conceptual, but I, I take the concept from the practice of all these human groups without trying to change what, what you're thinking about. Like there's an enormous amount of people engaged in trying to change their life, how they, they find meaning and how they can survive with their families. And especially because we're in a time of crisis, they are reinventing, right? And so I think this is what's maybe a bit like the contrast between our approaches, but I think they're entirely complementary. Uh, and so for example, right now, uh, so, and, and you know my story, Tim, you know, I was canceled in 2018 and that was like a huge thing for me. That was like a really disturbing uh, event in my life where, you know, I was like at the top of my, I mean, I was, I've never been very famous in the whole world, but like in, in my milieu, I was like at the top of my game in a way. And, you know, I was travel. I was doing hundreds of conferences a week, a year, you know, traveling five to seven months a year, visiting all these communities in the whole world. And then suddenly, um, you know, part of my community turned against me around identity politics, right? And suddenly, like, I, I lost my audience and I lost my subject. Like, where's the subject of change? Uh, was like a, a real issue for me. And uh, I end up right now, I, I end up working for a, uh, you know, what some people call a coordination. Uh, so I, I work for the, uh, for two, two outfits. Well, one that I think Forrest will know is I, I'm a contractor to the Civilization Research Institute. And, you know, I try to combine their work on existential risk with my insights of reading, you know, all these civilizational theorists. So like how does, how does the existential risk story fit in the civilizational story? That's kind of where, where, what I'm doing with them. And then separately from this, I'm, I'm working on, on with the global Chinese commons. And I, I find it fascinating. And so you have to remember, I worked for the government in Ecuador, trying to do a commons transition plan at a very high level didn't work I, I I think the work was valuable and gave a lot of insights but in terms of you know like the the catastrophe of politics today is that like you you can't do anything at those levels um, then I worked for a city um, and luckily at the city level even though you know the mayor who who commissioned the work actually got a heart attack and got replaced the you know it was my work was based on uh, really linking up all these urban provisioning, commons-oriented provisioning systems that were emerging. Uh, so that was a bit more more useful in practical terms. But now I'm 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 working on this like really self-created, cosmo-local community, and I I think it's fascinating how these people are reshaping the world. And I, I'm not saying they're right or you know this is the solution. But they're definitely engaging. Uh, so these are Chinese people. 
And, you know, there's a lot of things around crypto that are no longer legal in China. So they, you know, they want to keep working on, on their dreams and their desires. And so they're creating a network of places where, so they can basically work outside the country and then still be connected to their families and, and their life. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, you know, mainland, Taiwan, Chinese from, from all over the world. It's very interesting. Are they, they from a kind of new translocal community based on their common culture, being open to others like me who are not Chinese, but still wanting basically to, you know, like they want to reinvent their Chinese identity. Like what does it mean to be Chinese today in this global world, right? Where you're both Chinese, but you're so interconnected. Like, you know, these people are just like us. Like they're totally modernized. They totally know what's happening. You know, we hear about the Chinese wall. Believe me, like everything is just like flowing. You know, if you want to know, you know. You know, every everybody in the whole world is listening to K-pop, basically. You know, there's, there's no wall that can stop that. And so, so, so that's kind of my interest is, and so what, one of the things they're doing, and just to explain this, is so this is a network. Right. And what is the network doing? They're creating comments. Like Gitcoin alone has spent $80 million to fund their common infrastructure. So things that are not in the short term interest of any economic agent that is participating in the network, but that is, you know, useful for everybody in the network. And so that is to me is really interesting to see how. Uh, so the, the way I see the process is you have a relatively stable system that is becoming dysfunctional, losing legitimacy, losing functionality. People have to leave the system to survive. And then they're experimenting with things that no longer have the logic of the dysfunctional society, but represent in seed form a potentiality. You know, they're trying to actualize these potentialities to use the language. I think <laughs> of uh, of Forest, um, and uh, so for me that's fascinating because it's uh, somebody called, and I think it, you know uh, self infrastructure, right? So what what these people are doing is self infrastructuring, and they're building infrastructures that correspond to their values. So they're doing that what Forest and and maybe Daniel is saying, which is you know, they're, they're putting their first principles, what they desire from life, they're embodying this in their infrastructures, right? That, and, and then, you know, there's a lot of the, you know, as an old lefty, there's a lot I can critique in this. And I, you know, I'm not always comfortable with, uh, all of the choices they make. And so I kind of mapped out this, you know, these, these four worlds which I think we are building at the same time and, and that are competing, right? And they all have to do with how do we connect the old world of the physical geographic governance of, you know, geographically based nation states. How do we connect that to the new translocal community building that no longer has to take into account necessarily that geographical linkage, 
right? So we, we are now in an age where we create these coordinations where people are creating collective projects that are no longer bound to their geographic embodiment, but to their spiritual affinity. Um, and and so, uh, yeah, I think I kind of lost my thread in, but I, I think this is equally interesting, right? So thinking about first principles, rethinking every, everything, like showing that we have freedom, right? That we could actually reorganize the world. And this is not utopian. It has happened many times before. I think this is, you know, like a lot of people think we can't do anything, we can't change anything. But, you know, you look at human history, that's the only thing that there is, is change. And, and periodic overhauls, either of the whole system or or the elites that, that are changing. So, yeah. So I just wanted to say that I think that's complementary but this is also very important, is to look at what people are actually doing and how, how they are translating, you know, these spiritual changes that they are feeling into actually embodied infrastructures uh, and creating, like, new logics of life and value already now. They're not waiting for, like, the big, you know, the big red dawn they are changing their lives as we speak, you know, interfacing with this, the reality and, and, and putting their dreams in that reality and then see experimentally how far they can go. I, and I think this is fascinating. Um, and so I'm trying to build a language around the commons based on the language that these communities are effectively using. And I'm trying to put them together in something more coherent. Yes, I hear you. Thank you, Michelle. Daniel, it looked like you made a note to speak. Well, I was just going to say I, I enjoyed all of that and what Forrest said as well. So a few things come to mind. Um, you know, first off, what I would love to do is increase the probability that more people can even think to do the thing that you're talking about, Mikkel, because the more people that is involved, the more diversity of experimentation you would occur. And one of the big things that I think is really hurting us is basically the association of intellectual in good use of time as doing that of which is plugging into something with a preset end and that can be grounded. And the reason for this is, you know, we're talking a lot about, and I actually really agree with you on this point that 19th century, like in the Scottish Enlightenment, you could, you know, Adam Smith seems to be both a sociologist and an economist, Karl Marx, Ricardo, et cetera, so forth. These distinctions now between, um, you know, they, they greatly understood these distinctions and now we don't. And we're smarter, I guess, right? Uh, so, um, so I, I agree with that point that you that you've made. Um, and this is why, also, like it cannot be overstated that Adam Smith writes the, the theory of moral sentiments before the wealth of nations. The wealth of nations is what follows from a theory of motivation that is tied into grounded relations with a ground, like with a concrete community. Also, I do a whole lot in David Hume, and if you take my word for it, one of the reasons why you have David Hume coming along and saying that you can't arrive from ought from is 
is because he wants to establish that you can only arrive at aught from suchness, live sentimental experience. What he's very concerned about is abstract philosophical concepts of what a thing is, that then some king from the distance can tell people what they ought to do because he can identify. David Hume's entire project is ultimately the eradication of all autonomous rationalities, rationalities that operate with any, without any reference to something outside of them because he believes that leads to basically what I call autocannibalism. It's where rationality eats itself. When morality does not have to ascribe to sentiment and empathy, then it becomes a theory that actually becomes tyrannical. And so David Hume is about moving from isness to suchness. And basically, we all need to be about moving from isness to suchness because you get all sorts of troubles. So I, I really agree with that point. Um, in order to open new categories of how people think, it is not a matter of giving them new content necessarily, but it's like the medium is the message we learned from McLuhan, right? You know, the medium of how people think is a big deal. So something I like to talk about is uh, something that Neil Postman brought out on Teaching in a Subversive Act, where he pointed out that because the classroom in its structure teaches you that a smart person is good at trivia, we do not think about intelligence as the exploration of topics that we don't know of ahead of time. So what ends up happening is you have kids that go through school and are led to believe that the smart kid is the one who knows the answers quickest to a question that someone already knows the answer to. And if you know that answer, you're smart. So what ends up happening is you get a subconscious association of an intellectual act being the naming of an answer that somebody knows. And then those people over there who are doing creative work or philosophy, they're not very smart because the medium here tells me that what it means to be smart is to be good at trivia. But here's the problem. That means being smart sets you up to just plug into the system, as opposed to what if intellectual, what if the classroom and its structure taught you that what is intelligent is, say, hosting a conversation? Do we know what we're going to talk about? We have a topic, but we don't actually know where we're going to end up. And also, critically, you learn the possibility of community without, say, a transcendental grounding. Like a, you know, like after the death of God, it's the idea that you can't have an objective transcendental grounding for reality. Well, we see right here that relation seems to be able to keep something afloat. We see right here that an exchange of information seems to make things afloat. So what you start to move is to the possibility of community on terms of relation, which would speak to Mr. Landry's work, and the movement of a conversation with a non-preset end and the ability to keep that flowing is almost like magic, but it does make possible the forming of community, and then a community can be the practical enactment of that movement of information that we are no longer associated to think is not an intelligent use of time because we've moved beyond the medium of the classroom that makes us associate being smart with trivia. So I think one of the number one things we have to do is transform the subconscious association people have with being smart or being educated with being able to answer trivia and move it into the direction of being able to engage in experimentation in different ways of doing things and keeping it afloat by the negotiation and conversation of the community. So that would open up the ability of people to even think engaging in community like you're describing, Mikkel, in as being a rational and intelligent opportunity because we have these subconscious associations that makes it difficult to even think doing that kind of thing. So I would be all about breaking and transforming the classroom structure from a trivia structure where the medium is the message to one that would push us in the direction of thinking experimentally. Because that would also lead you into things like tactile knowledge because you'd have to go to the community and try things. Those are the other things. We teach people that a smart guy is 
someone who's good at, we teach people that abstract knowledge is best knowledge, like questions abstracted from contexts. And if you have answers that can apply to questions at all time, that's kind of the highest form of knowledge. No one ever directly says that, but the medium creates that impression, right? And so if we can break down those associations, I think we open up people to actually one being conditioned to engage in the polis, in the political, because they can engage in the conversation. Because the key point is if you've been taught that you need to have a confirmation of the right answer from a teacher, well, that would mean you could only do politics and the political discord if at the end of the day, there's some strong man or authority that's going to be able to tell you that, yes, that was the right answer. You said all the right things, part of the political project. So you don't have an association of engaging an intellectual life that can move you beyond the need of an ultimate authority. And so the polis then is in trouble because it's conditioned to rationally look for that confirmation, which then would need an authority figure, right? But then, of course, the question that Forrest got out, and I'll close on this, that I think is a million dollar question, is what are the grounds of authority today? Because if you have a governance, where do you get authority from, right? Because if you don't believe in God or you don't have a transcendental grounding, where does it come from? I think we have to think about um, authority in terms of those of whom know what are the conditions that need to be met to create an experience of the aura or value of which then means knows how to bring about an attunement to a certain quality of interaction that then everyone sees the value in. So to make an example, when everyone sees beauty, do we ask, does that have authority? The mere apprehension, and this speaks to the voice craft that Forrest got it, when we all experience something profoundly beautiful, it in the apprehension has a certain authority. It in the apprehension has an authority. Likewise, when you have a conversation and you go, that's a good conversation, there is an authority in that goodness that is not arbitrary, but becomes from the quality of the interaction itself. So for me, because I do a lot in Hegel, which I promise you I won't get into, I'll resist it. But there's a question in Hegel of can you have a philosophy that is not presuppositional, looking for givens and grounds, and is more of what I call intersuppositional where the legitimization of the philosophy, and this I think speaks to Forrest's points on relations as primary, can it come from a certain relation, which every relation is also a conditioning. And if it is possible to have a certain discussion of how we condition things to apprehend something. So for example, if I go into one of the communities that Mikhail is talking about, and I am able to apprehend a practical quality of life that in it's very concrete in that apprehension, that is much closer to my grandmother's sweater that she made having order than the stuff off the assembly line, then that concrete apprehension, because apprehension is concrete, you freaking can freaking apprehend it. That's the authority. And I would say this community is thus functional. This community is thus functional in the fullest sense not a reductionist sense that breaks everything down into utility, but that's going to require a certain ability to trust our own apprehensions, our own senses of quality, our own ability to create those conditions. And the thing is, and to close on this, for most of history, we really haven't had to develop that ability to trust ourselves so much because the preacher told us we could or the politician told we we could. But after what you, you know, the death of God, if you grant that kind of notion from Nietzsche, which by the way, for Nietzsche is not merely the death of God, 
It's also the death of all sources of values bestowed unto you from something outside of you. He talks about science, utilitarianism, nationalism, all these things as bestowed to organize your choice making. And if you are aligned with, you can trust your own processes of apprehension. Well, to talk about the death of God, then, is to talk about the death of bestocentrism, a world where your organizing principles for choices and decision making is bestowed to you by something external. You now have to be responsible for it and condition yourself to handle that responsibility. Oh, and by the way, do it in a manner that is not egotistical and shuts everyone else down, because you could do all of that by what? Atomizing and leaving everyone behind. And that's actually what people are doing. That's the problem. Like you have this massive movement in the Western world where you have the loss of bestocentrism. So then how do we get shared intelligibility to, so I understand you? That's really hard. I haven't been trained to talk with people. I have a subconscious association of utility as a good use of time. This doesn't seem like it would pay money to learn how to interact with people. So it'd be irrational to do it. And thus we define rationality in terms of what is leading to our dehumanization and loss of care. What we have to do is regain a sense that rationality entails care, that you're not actually humanly rational in a fullest sense without care, but that's going to require us owning our own ability to apprehend and to trust those apprehensions. So when I walk into one of Mikhail's communities or the different ones and try these different experiments and I apprehend a certain aura or quality of engagement, I say, yes, there's a value here that I then trust that judgment because then I can choose that community and trust that choice. And now I've engaged in the choice that is necessary for the horizon of care. Can I say a little, a little thing? Um, and again, you know, I'm, I'm more sociological in my approach, but so I, I think that what we suffer from in this world is uh, a loss of uh, the existence of organic intellectuals. So, you know, very broadly, I think historically intellectuals were at the service of power, right? You have the clergy, they're, they're actually intellectuals in traditional societies. And, you know, they're at the service of the society as a whole, trying to moralize the warriors and, and, and everything and create an orderly society. And then in the 19th century, where we create this proletariat, so we, we exclude people from the system, you know, and, 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 and they're, they die when they're 35 on average until the 1850s. We create a new kind of organic intellectuals because the labor movement is able to fund itself through fraternities, mutualities, and all, all kinds of social commons. And so you, you get the type of person that is intellectualized, but is at the service of the people. And this has died. So for me, this is a like a sociological catastrophe is that with the kind of disappearance of labor culture from, you know, the 70s onwards, we, we completely lost this kind of people that that are intellectualized, but are at the service of less intellectualized. people. And, and I, I think this is we, we need to recreate this. This is, has to be recreated. And in my very modest way, that's what I'm trying to do with these network nations. I'm trying to be at the service uh, with my skills to people who, you know, are very smart, but usually there's engineers. So they know engineering, they know game theory and Austrian economics. And that's pretty much it. That's how they are, you know, trained, right? And it's, 
you know, they do with what they have, they do beautiful things, but it's very hard for them to actually realize that, you know, there's other visions that are equally legitimate. And so anyway, I'm, I'm trying to open their, their, their minds to, to, you know, to a broader, uh, less mechanistic way of looking at, at the world. And I just want to give an example to finish that, which I really like. So there is this, uh, St. Joseph the Worker. Uh, I, uh, it's in the US. I don't know exactly where it is. So there's a group called New Polity. They're like conservative Christian Democrats following the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. So they're recreating craft schools, but they're teaching them high philosophy. So as, as they are learning plumbing and construction, they're reading Thomas Aquinas. And this to me, like that sinks to me. I, I don't know why, but I feel like this is where we have to go. Right, not not like dumbing down people because this is what neoliberalism is doing. Is like, oh, you don't need philosophy; it's, it's abstract. Let's go back to you know just learning skills. Uh, no, no, no. I think we need fully rounded people, including working class people and craftspeople, that have know how to make things well, but also know how to think well. And that integration, I think. Is kind of huge, and then just to say, Daniel, I think you're a good example, right? You are, you are embodied in the land, right? So I think we need an education where we have these layers recreated developmentally, where you're embodied in the land. So I think you know kids should be involved in making, may, maybe even making their own food in the school to to re fully realize what it is, you know, to make food that makes stuff. But also think well, right? And and because right now we're in this anti-intellectual uh, moment, which is a catastrophe. Uh, people are people are regressing. Uh, you know, I I think it's eventually getting better. But in this descending and chaotic phase, we we are facing a terrible regression uh, of thinking and and feeling, which is very 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 dangerous in the short run. As the actual representative craftsperson intellect coming from non-institutional organization i'm probably the best possible example of what you're asking for is currently living and in this particular sense i have a few observations to make one is that i agree with almost everything you said um, but i also noticed that my particular intellectual process actually has a heritage it's not a heritage from the institution it's a heritage from the guild and that, in effect, it's not so much that I'm basically, as an individual, an intellectual. It's that as a as a guild craftsman, I'm an intellectual. In other words, that there's a small community of people, i.e., this little group. It's basically a family around a tradition. And that, in effect, there's 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 a woodworking tradition, there's a blacksmithing tradition, and that these these things are in service to the community. So, in effect, rather than thinking about being in relationship to an institution or even trying to be an individual as an intellectual it's the guild itself as a service relationship to the community that it is a part of and then in this particular sense um what i'm hearing in, in, in all of this is is this very strong emphasis on community and that if we're going to if we're going to actually balance the relationship between nature humanity and technology that in effect we need to actually focus on how do we do humanity right how do we do the commons right and in this particular sense the guild is in service to the commons 
And yeah, there is a person that is maybe a focus of a guild that has essentially the best embodiment of those skills at that particular time, but it's a heritage thing that they pass on. It's a torch that's passed. And so in this particular sense, I'm 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 very much advocating that uh we we start thinking about as as has been mentioned by Daniel, uh, different ways of thinking about educational process and different ways of holding how we hold uh, the, the relationships of, of of just how these choices are even being made, like who to teach what and how that's taught. I specifically liked uh, a few things that, that you mentioned. One was this, I mean, then I'm, I'm still speaking to, to you, Michael. One was this, let's observe what people actually value, not what they talk about, but what they actually do. Um, I really love that emphasis. And I, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to add to it a particular uh, kind of, uh, thing that I noticed that, that went with it is like, yeah, of course, I absolutely want to pay attention to what people do because it's at the embodiment level of what they do that I can really learn what their values are. If I want to know what the human is, if we're saying to 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 really balance the relationship between nature and technology through humanity, then in effect, I need to account for the actuality of what the human condition really is. But if I want to reach for the divine, I need to go through the animal to get to it. We all have an animal nature. We all have a divine nature. But in order to be fully human, I have to know both the animal and the divine, the, the angel and the demon combined in the human. And in this particular sense, there's a there's a sort of you know reaffirmation of what is the psychology? What is the sociology? What is the anthropology? What is actually happening in real context on the ground that allows us to know that these are the things that people really care about and to affirm the care, to notice the care. And so in this particular sense, I I, I think that, um, again, you might not know my work very well, but um, a lot of what I'm really focused on is community development process. Um, so in effect, how do we create healthy communities? What does that even mean? What do we mean by a healthy person? What do we mean by a healthy family? What do we mean by a healthy community? What do we mean by a healthy planet, right? There's a, there's a sense here in which to, to to have a knowledge and articulation of that is on one hand a deeply anthropological question, a deeply psychological question. And in order to really tune into these kinds of things, we have to be willing to ask things like, well, what are the fundamental instincts that drive human behavior? Right? The choices that we make, right? We have instincts for social process, we have instincts for survival process, and we have instincts for procreation, what might be called sexual process. And then in effect, that these primary drivers of, of of our choice making to some extent want to be accounted for in a good way. They're not wrong by themselves. They only become wrong when, when people manipulate them, as in you will only belong to this social group or this commons if you uh, follow these particular rules, right? In the sense it becomes essentially uh, belongingness, i.e. The, the idea that uh, our deep instinct for wanting to be social is in effect going to become leveraged to some person's power. And so in this particular sense, it's like, not only do I want to be deeply discerning about the instincts that I have and how they make choices and how that influences how our community comes together and the relationships we have with each other, the kinds of commitments we make and the kinds of conversational processes that we're engaged in, right? So in effect, if I'm noticing that agreements in community depend upon relationships, as they must, always, ultimately, because even a contractual thing is going to be held up by a court system. A court system is a collection of relationships, it's agreements and relationships. But underneath every relationship is a sequence of communication events. And then in effect, the network of relationships 
supports the relationship of agreements, the structure and network of agreements is held by the network of relationships, but it itself is held by the relationship of communication acts. And so when Habermas is talking about communication and communicative process, he's basically getting down to the root of what does it mean to actually create healthy relationships is the skill of creating clear communication which to some extent basically is referring back to, you know, the, the sort of things that we might be as, as what is the basis of our social process? What is the basis of our instinctual process? How are we actually human together? How do we live together? And so to some extent, in order to facilitate this, it's really important to be able to distinguish between institutional process and community process. You mentioned the commons, which by the way, I'm delighted to hear. Right, because there really needs to be some scale between the individual and the entire farting world. Right, the internet basically, if I publish something, it's presumed to be available to eight billion people, and if it's private, if I have a password behind it, it's presumed to be available to maybe half a dozen people if I'm very careful and I share passwords with them. Right, but really, what I want to do is I want to have a community level of of connection. Right, to keep it local in the sense of we do sense making together. And that, and this is referring to something that Daniel was mentioning was, is that, hey, by the way, you know, when we're thinking about this, this process, we're not just going to go directly from what is to what ought to be. To some extent, we need to go through this intermediate phase, this deep sensing phase, right? You have this, this, this artificial dilemma between um, thinking things through, so it's kind of analysis paralysis point of view, the sort of utilitarian calculus, which, as Daniel mentioned quite well, is completely ungrounded without some relationship to something outside of itself, right? Some actual value in the embodied sense that you're referring to, then, then in effect, there's a there's there's a notion that the soundness is supporting the validity, and that together we can actually think about something that, that that would in fact be a good choice that our communication process becomes a way in which we sense together not just think together that we feel together and that through clear thinking and discerning awareness of feeling that then we can act well right like the the the, the, the relationship between the good the true and the beautiful which daniel alluded to is, is actually a thing. The authority of, of the community, the authority of the choice that the community makes comes through not just the clear thinking, but the deep sensing, so that then the action becomes something that is fully reified through, I can think through it clearly, and I, all of my whole self, my inner child, my, my adult wise self, the parents, the person that loves to play basketball, that all of these parts of myself basically say, hell yeah, to that choice. And that we choose together in that particular sense. This is where the authority comes from. It's essentially in the communicative process. It's in the relationships that that's what makes the agreement. That's where authority is. So in this particular sense, what I'm basically describing is, is that the commons and the, the way in which we hold the commons is the communication process, the relational process, and then the agreements that form in that commons. That's what we're talking about when we say the commons. And so in effect, what works for the commons? Well, you know, some sort of one-size-fits-all educational model is certainly not going to work, right? We need something that's a little bit more adaptive and works a little bit more at the scale we're talking about. So now we're back to this sort of guild way of thinking. And similarly, if I'm saying, okay, well, we're looking at these sort of three instincts as being the basis of choice. Well, wait a minute. Now we've got, okay, so how do people have relationships? Well, let's see. There's relationships of care. There's relationships of transaction. There's relationships of power. And I sure as hell had better know which one is which. 
Because if I'm in communication with you and you're organizing it from a transactional perspective, but I'm organizing it from a care-based perspective, I'm probably going to lose in the sense that the communicative context that we're in just is mismatched. On the other hand, if you're in a transactional relationship with me, but I'm in a power relationship with respect to you, you're going to basically be the loser because you didn't discern that effectively you weren't given the choice. I'm commanding you to do something, right? And in effect, if I have the capacity to do that, then in effect, what I've done is I've I've taken a causal process, some conditional thing, some agreement, and I've used it to manipulate the situation so that you don't have choice and I do. That's what weaponization is. So in this particular sense, if we're if we're wanting to enable communities to choose well together, we're wanting to enable them to communicate well with them together, which basically means that they need to be more discerning about what kind of relationship are they actually in, right? If it's going to be an institutional context, the notion of institution is fundamentally hierarchical and fundamentally transactional, but a community is based upon relationships of care, and these are not the same. And as a person who has taken this philosophy, and by the way, I would be probably pretty confident to say that of all the philosophers that I've ever known, especially in the modern times, especially in the Western world, that I may be the only one that has actually tested his philosophy in a real business in the real world and actually put it on the ground and subjected it to the most demanding and stringent tests of which anybody could conceive, which is, does it work in reality? Okay, does it work with real people? Does it work in actual communities? And if the answer to that question is, I don't know because I haven't tried it yet, then basically I'm just going to say, well, then you don't know because you haven't tried it yet. But in this particular sense, I'm going to tell you flat out that I have tried it. And I can tell you that an institution and a community are not, not isomorphic with one another. They are distinct. Um, I'm going to basically contest one thing that you said way early on, Michael, which is at an early part of the conversation, you used the word institution when I know you meant community. And so therefore, I would ask, know the difference, right? Because in this particular sense, if we build more institutions, if we build more systems, we're creating more conditional structures, which is more causation, which is more of the kinds of things that we've already deployed to the maximum extent possible in the world. And what got us here won't get us there. What we need to be in the future is a higher skillfulness and capacity of choice so that we can actually choose wisdom, health, well-being, basically survival, procreation, and social process that actually works. And so, in effect, we need to understand those essential natures. And if we use the wrong tools, we'll end up with not so good results because we weren't conscientious enough to have really paid attention to the essence of what's actually happening. So in this particular sense, I would say, yeah, I am a hell yes to basically community formation and cultural formation, which I sense is at the center of where you're thinking about all these particular things. And when you bring it down to actual practice, you're doing the right stuff. So in this particular sense, I don't actually have any complaints, but I'm therefore noticing the language as basically being a tool by which we can do what we're doing even better. So Daniel, I'm just, now going to back to you. What's that? I just, I just want to just clarify and maybe this can be a separate discussion, but I do think that we need institutions so that community... I'm not saying that institutions are bad, yeah. right? No, no, I'm just basically yeah, yeah, saying I, that... But I agree, they're different. I, but I also different. think that that it, it can be done only with community, that we need some level of institutions. Some, some things can only be done with institutions and some things okay, can only we agree. be done with Then we agree. And, and yeah, then exactly. we can another right time. Now, here's here's right. where I think we would also agree, right? The world is full of institutions. 
There's not that many communities. The communities, it used to be the case, go back to the Middle Ages, and business, i.e. marketplace, would happen on maybe a Sunday once a month, right? But now marketplace is everything, and community happens in the context of marketplace maybe, whereas it used to be the marketplace, commercialism happened in the context of community. The, the balance is way off. We need to get more community process. Okay. All right. So, Daniel, I first of all, there's 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 a lot of things that you remarked on. Although I'm realizing we're getting close to time, I probably won't actually get to mention very many of them at all. That's too bad. Um, but but in this particular sense, I do think that there are some things that uh, you and I have a lot to talk about. That is very strong areas of agreement. Um, I love that you're basically pulling in all of these different areas of philosophy and showing how they're relevant to what's going on today. And I hear specifically your interest and focus on community as well. And and then again, there's there's a there's a sort of response. We don't want to get into analysis paralysis, and we don't want to be subjecting ourselves to an action bias. And by the way, it's not an either or. There is this third pole, which is this deep sensing thing, and that if we get really really clear about what are the kinds of dynamics of relationship that, in effect, we can actually make better choices about these kinds of things. Um, again, just in the acknowledgement of time, I'm going to stop here. But on the other hand, I'd, I'd actually like to, to, to go back, listen to some of the things that you had spoken to again, and to, and to start to show some of the things that I've been working on weave into some of the things that you're already doing so that you can find some support there. Because uh, there there are a couple of places, for example, where I notice that, like, there's 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 again a sort of historical thing. But if we're going to pull it into the present and make it something that people can actually see today as relevant right now, um, then in effect we're going to want to clear connect some of these threads together and clear up a few pieces. But I think I'm going to stop with that just now. Other than to just again acknowledge the the sense in which I hear that you're holding community as well, and to you know, just really point to these, again, these sort of underlying dynamics that that that, that I think are holding the threads of what we're, we're talking about together. No, delightful. Yes. And Daniel, yes, um, I am aware that we should look to begin to wrap up. Um, and so let me just say a couple things. I'll, I will pass it back over to you. Forrest, we've shared so many hours in conversation, Daniel and I, that I I can almost guarantee that about 10 minutes of absolute gold is about to come forth from Daniel, but that it, it will very much be leading into a next conversation. And so I just like to, I just like to say um, that, you know, it was certainly my intention in bringing you guys together that we have a few more conversations if that is desired, if, if you're all willing, um, I'm, I'm confident that at least a few of you are. It's probably more on yourself, Forrest, in terms of your availability. And I'd also like to do the next one with the invitations open to a number of the Voicecraft network to attend and then to ask some questions and be present for some questions at the end. Daniel's been a participant in the Voicecraft community for a number of years now, and Michelle has um, recently joined sort of about four or five months ago. Um, there is, in fact, in the context of this being brought together, a a real living embodiment of actually much that is being discussed, like a genuine attempt to essentially bootstrap the kind of, well, many things at once. Um, 
And so I, I don't know how aware you are of that forest and it would be worthwhile, I think, saying some things in between now and then about that because we have a sort of a living example of a sort of Cosmo local project here that sort of centers the criticality of communication and relationship across thinking, feeling, you name it, you know, with, with people at varying levels of, um, let's say, readiness to engage in the kind of metaphysical deliberation that might be here, but at the same time is trying to hold to a standard that welcomes that kind of deliberation and can actually do so, but at the same time recognizes that for the majority of people entering the context, certainly at the local level, for instance, we held an event about about you know current happenings with respect to war and what have you, the um, nature of meeting and the delicate footsteps toward the possibility of community in such contexts is of course undergoing you know the necessity of a very different kind of exchange and um and we're sort of trying to link these worlds and in that sense open up the possibility of connecting a diversity of voices who can support the strengthening of the capacity to participate in relationship in the kind of context we're speaking about, which is inherently something quite transitional. Uh, you mentioned the point about the analysis paralysis on the one hand, and then also too much of an action bias. To me, all of this is rather complicated by the transitionary times we're in and that you know, speaking on behalf of myself and the responsibilities I have to people I love and, and friends and, and peers and the commons more broadly, it's um, for all the aspiration and all the dedication over many years, <laughs> not as a part-time thing, uh, you know, I've mentioned on many occasions the tremendous inadequacy um, that I have to actually bring to bear what seem to me absolute necessities of being in concrete address with the, with the dynamics we're discussing. Uh, and yet those inadequacies are in some sense the leading edges of the very things that are important to bring into relationship. And I think that some of those things will be voiced by people who are able to sort of listen to this and then participate in a final part. But of course, there's only so much time on the channel. And so, you know, there's tremendous complexities to all of this. Um, I think it's worth knowing that and for people listening and for people viewing and speaking directly to those of you who have been in conversations with Daniel and I for a long time around a number of these things. I think it's worth, you know, it's worth affirming that there are real efforts here being made. And in that sense, actually the possibility of, of genuine discussion of strategy for us. And I understand that plays a certain role in how you think about the relationship between culture and vision. I would be so bold to say as we're not here speaking into the void, if you get my meaning, and that there are in fact relationships and contexts that are capable of being in discussion, being in conversation about these types of things. Certainly, I've got plans because I must, because this conversation will end and I have things to do in order to return and create the conditions for it to happen again. And so, you know, inadequate in some sense, though those plans may be, I still must make them as must we all. And so here we are in the middle of all of that. And um, I'd just like to pass it over uh, to Daniel. I know you've got some things to share um, in 
closing and then we'll open it up to each of you as well to share some things in closing too. So thank you. Well, delightful. I appreciate everything you said for us, Mikkel. This has been wonderful. And there is that lurking pricing problem that we have going on. We've gotten very good, generally, of figuring out how to have pricing systems and the uh, distribution of limited resources when it comes to utility, matters of scarcity. But how in the world do you price the value of someone who gives you new eyes or the ability to apprehend beauty or to participate in a community in a new way? And that seems to be what we have to figure to price. So, for example, we need to create systems of economically supporting people that are able to um, make you better at attuning to reality or conditioning to reality or capable of care. And basically, we've if uh, to make a giant claim, we've almost in a sense reached the end of when we can socioeconomically get away with not having good ways to price environments that are able to help you condition and attune to reality in good ways. So the example I like to make, because there's this interesting question um, that Forrest was getting at, we we're talking about beauty and kind of authority and apprehension. Um, so Arwen Barfield has this lovely example where he, where he asks, you know, is a rainbow real? Does a rainbow exist? And you go, well, of course it exists. And you say, well, you know, does it? I mean, it's kind of weird, right? And he said, it's very interesting. In order to experience a rainbow, you have to have certain conditions. It has to be raining, there has to be sunny, you have to be standing in a certain place, but it's not a hallucination because other people could see it too if they meet those conditions, right? And then you apprehend a rainbow. Philosophy is gaining the abilities of knowing how to create the conditions of seeing things like rainbows, which are things you can only experience under what? Certain conditions. Critically, I think friendship is like that. And let us note that in Aristotle, a good political system is one that is bounded by friendship. But what in the world is friendship? Friendship is very strange. It is some sort of experience between people that is a consequence of a certain condition and attunement that they meet that makes something appear like a rainbow that is there, but not there in the same way that a tree is there. And so what's the value of that? How do you value that? How do you make that sustainable? Well, one of the reasons I'm so big at removing and transforming the medium of school is because to even think about valuing or pricing or making economically sustainable something like voicecraft would require people to not have the subconscious association of the only things worth giving money to being that in the realm of utility versus the, the ability to condition apprehending certain experiences of reality. There may be something here looking into the future where there seems to be in order to get some of the communities that Mikkel is putting forth of the value of the, the commons, one would need to read something like the work of Forrest Landry or go through the practices of voicecraft. Might we imagine a world where people begin to see sort of an interconnectedness between these different values, where if I want to participate in Mikkel, then I need to go through voicecraft and be familiar with Forrest. There may be some sort of prop, like some sort of pricing system that can be put forth to sort of speak to a process of conditioning that make people capable of experiencing a quality of reality that will change how they carry themselves in the world. But it's kind of like a rainbow. So you have to meet certain conditions, but these are the places where you can meet those conditions. So there may be something like that one has to think in order to this great pressing economic question that is lurking because we haven't really figured out how to do it. Um, basically in the past, what churches would do is be like, 
hey, because churches would impact how you see. They had an offering plate and God tells you to give 10%. So even if you didn't quite understand because you didn't have the metaphysics of force to know that it was changing your apprehension, you still did it and had your apprehension changing and you made it sustainable, but it was all by chance almost. It wasn't directly intentional. You didn't know what you were doing in a way, right? Well, now we have to know what we're doing, but that means we have to directly understand the reality of conditionalism and attunement to then finance those places where that becomes possible. But one of the reasons I'm big on the education reform is because it's almost impossible now for us to even think that category of attuning and conditioning when the only activities of the brain is to be good at trivia. That's the problem. School creates the subconscious association that what the brain exists to do is to answer trivia questions or to plug into pre-existing systems. But if you remove that association and suddenly the brain turns into a bit more like an instrument that can be attuned to certain musics to make possible certain musics that otherwise couldn't be. And if there were more people that did that, then you could have a community that's authority comes from the music of the friendship that arises between those people. And that is the kind of authority that is required today, the experience of the rainbow. Oh, that guy knew what we needed to do to see the rainbow. Well, he's got authority then. Thus you have hierarchy, but it's it's in service. Like Forrest was saying, of the it's in service. The guild is a wonderful example because guilds are tied to what? Skills. But the funny thing is there is a skill in knowing the conditions of experiencing a rainbow, of knowing how to attune the instrument to experience the music. The people who know those skills, who are able to gift you with the steps you need to take to participate in the action that makes you so attuned, those are the people that have hierarchy, but it's a hierarchy for others, not for power, not for transaction. And it's a kind of blessed hierarchy because I sure am glad there are people in this world that, that know how to meet that conditioning because otherwise... I would never. And so there's a blessedness in that authority that comes from that. And it's an authority that is derived not from a power or from a threat, but from a quality of experience that is only possible because of the training of that guilt. So the question becomes that is opened on how these things might be priced, how these things might be allocated. There may be things of putting together these different communities so people can train one another and attune one another for what the others are doing. There might be ways to do this. But the first step for all that to be possible is conversations like this between people such as this. So I'm glad we had this opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Michelle, would you have any closing remarks to make? Um, well, not, not really, because I, you know, I think we all already spoke almost two hours and I, I think uh, it's taxing the attention of uh, our listeners. But notice how we are back at the discussion from the beginning. I, I think it's uh, really interesting how Daniel made the loop back to what is value and how value is expressed. Yeah, I think it's essential. And, and uh, you know, I, I haven't cracked the nut either, even though right now this year is a good year for me. But, um, you know, like the long-term, you know, survival of people like us, uh, I, if we're not guild members making, uh, you know, furniture, uh, it's it's a real problem. And I, I think there's a real, real crisis of intellectuality coming. You know, Peter Pogani says that, you know, culture is thermodynamic. So the, our ability to create this complex system with so many people doing symbolic work uh, has been a function of, of our overshoot. And as we... You know, rationalize our thermodynamic usage. 
in the coming years. And you know, I, I think someone formulated it very well. We are moving from a technosphere, which is which is an immature technosphere because it cannot live in balance with the biosphere. And we need to move to a mature technosphere, which can live in balance with the biosphere. Um, we risk really, um, there's a big issue of survival of intellectual work. And, you know, politically speaking, uh, I think we're about to go through a big pivot with a new ruling class that's coming out of the, you know, right-wing populist movement. They're going to be savage with uh, universities. Um, they're going to stop funding arts. They're going to stop funding culture. Because why would they fund people who are against them? You know, that's that's basically the way that uh, they're thinking right now. And so there's going to be a huge crisis coming of people who used to make a living from their brains, you know, and and are going to to be kicked out of these institutions. So this is going to be a really big issue coming. Is like how do we fund people dedicated? to non-material meaning, as we've always been doing, like we've always funded clergy and stuff, right? So it, we, well, so I don't think we actually have the solution yet for the coming era of how we're going to do this. So just uh, reinforcing Daniel's uh, point at the end that we, we need to work on this. Thank you, Michelle. Forrest, please don't feel the strain of having to bring final conclusion to everything given our time remaining but it'd be lovely to hear from you in closing thank you um i actually find myself a little bit in dis disagreement slightly in the sense that it's not going to be about I, I i personally find myself resistant to the idea of thinking about it in terms of numeric pricing methodologies there are other ways to achieve objective process that serve the same function of providing strong basis for collective action and collective choice making process. There's there's ways to do distributed governance and distributed economics such that it becomes more ecological rather than economic. And those 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 series of transitions and how to think about that is something which I can I can articulate, but it would take time, and I'm not going to try to do it now. In in this particular sense, I noticed that if I if I try to model our future based upon game dynamics or narrative or anything else that shifts the direction towards competition and away from cooperation that the phase change that's associated with such subtle metrics are uh, enormously consequential and so in effect there's a there's there's a, there's a need here for for me to at least mention that there are alternative ways of thinking about it that don't yield vulnerability to command and control systems that do to the kind of conditionalization that effectively would be disabling to community level choice with the level of wisdom necessary to actually affect a future that we could all be a part of so there's there's some very specific things that would need to be articulated in this space in order to clarify all that uh, which maybe we can do some next time in regards to the overall process, I'm glad that I was a part of this conversation. I'm aware of the social political uh, aspects that, that, that Michael is alluding to, and I'm aware of the um, sort of situational circumstances of do I have the kinds of relationships in my life 
that would that would be supportive under the circumstances where it all comes crashing down. It wouldn't matter how much gold I had in the bank if power goes out. So in this sense, there's a there's there's a notion here that uh, we really do at some point or another need to get back to the relational process and the communicative process in order to understand where value really lies. And um, as someone who has uh, some deficiencies, as we all do, um, then then in effect, I, I I recognize that even I have a lot to learn in that space. Um, so so in this sense, I'm I'm just basically going to close that along with many other conversations that have been had. That uh, you know, again, there's 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 motion forward in at least comparing notes to the degree that we've been able to do th- do so in this time. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Forrest. I won't say too much more other than I will be in touch and hopefully we can have another one of these conversations. So there we are. Yeah, thank, thank you, Tim, for, you know, arranging this. It's, uh, it's really great to learn from Daniel and, uh, and Forrest. And yeah, thank you for holding the space. And, you know, not just now, but like over quite a few years already. Yeah, awesome. No we agreed on that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tim. This has been wonderful. Thank you. All right, guys. I'll see you next time. Appreciate it.